You know, there's one cost I think that we uh, uh, that we face in this in this increasingly material and consumeristic world, and and that cost is a loss of grandeur. It's a loss of transcendence, seeing things beyond the reality beyond us. I mean, you kind of see it in children. You know, when children get so excited about something that we consider perhaps just normal. You know, they have this exuberance. They have this awe, this, this excitement over things. I had a theology professor that used to speak to us about our culture as if we're living in homes without windows, without skylights. You, you live in this home, and everything that you see and experience, that's all of life. And you redefine the reality of life by just what you see and what you can touch and what you can experience. And you lose transcendence. And he says, for the Christian, we live in homes without roofs, you know, that look up and see the glory of God and the majesty of God in the heavens. This a reminder of, of God's transcendence and glory. That's what Psalm 8 is trying to do. He's trying to breathe this idea of God's greatness and majesty into a very earth-bound people. You're going to see him both beginning and ending say, how majestic is your name in all of the earth? That, that, that his mind is caught up with the greatness of God. He wants to celebrate God. He wants us to celebrate God with him. And he's going to give us these reasons as we look at Psalm 8, reasons as to why we would be fools to not celebrate God. I mean, when we read through this passage, it's just laden with diamonds just to look at and consider God and all of his greatness. So turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 8, and it's just nine brief verses. But let this psalm as I said, kind of breathe into us the greatness of God. I know we're burdened by issues and problems and struggles, or maybe some of us are overwhelmed with joys and happiness, but all those things are going to pale in comparison to what you're going to hear in this psalm. He says in 8.1, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength or ordained praise because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The first thing, I think the first thing David, the psalmist, wants to have us celebrate about God is his Unrivaled majesty, his unrivaled majesty. We want to celebrate God for his unrivaled majesty. Everybody in all the earth, all the inhabitants of the earth should celebrate God for his unrivaled majesty. He says, how majestic is your name? Now, you know, a name is not simply a, a means of identification, but it's a it's a it's a character. It's a reputation. And God's name is majestic. And that that little word majestic is is a word used 
like to describe mountain peaks, you know, the kind of mountain peaks that are jagged and you, you see it in the wind and the snow's blowing off it. It's kind of take your breath away kind of, kind of scene. That's the kind of majesty that describes the name of God. In fact, he tells us the name of God. He says, O Lord, our Lord. So in English, it's Lord and Lord. Hebrew, two different words. One is Yahweh. That is the covenantal name of God, where God has revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. It is I am that I am. In other words, that's the self-existent God. He's always existed. The other word for Lord is Adonai. It's kind of a personal title. Like a servant would say to his, to his Lord, he would say Master and Lord. So, so when you look at these together, the majesty of God's name is seen in the fact that God is the only non-contingent being at all. Everybody in this room, everything is contingent upon God for everything you have, everything you are. Everything is sustained by him. Everything is held together by him. He's the only one that is purely and perfectly self-sufficient. His name is great. This is the God that we're worshiping. And what he does is, at the end of verse 1, he says, you've set this glory in the heavens. In other words, he's going to give us a picture of his absolute glory and his bigness in the heavens. Now, we know this in Psalm 19.1. He says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Now, David said this. David didn't have any magnification. So for him to look at the stars, perhaps as he's shepherding, no lights, he sees the beauty of the, of the heavens, you can see about 3,000 stars to the naked eye. 3,000 stars. Well, now we have this magnification, right? The Hubble telescope. There it is in space. A few years after they launched it and began to use it, they noticed a speck on the corner of the Big Dipper, a, a little speck. It was like the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length. And, and when they began spying on that and taking pictures of that, they revealed that it was 1,500 different galaxies were contained in that. 1,500 galaxies. It, tremendously large. Incredible. I mean, when you think about the expanse, let's just take the expanse of the universe, just the expanse. So a light traveling at the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. If you drive 186,000 miles per second, if you fly, thinking about my kids and their driving, sorry. (laughs) If you fly at 186,000 miles per second, it takes you eight minutes to get to the sun. And to leave the sun and to go just to the middle of our galaxy, Milky Way, not a huge one, but our galaxy would take 33,000 years flying at that speed just to the middle of our galaxy. Scientists think there are billions of galaxies. If you were to try to go to the end of the galaxy, they think it would take anywhere from 20 to 40 billion years at 186,000 miles per second. I mean, it's incredible. So when he says, how majestic is your name? He isn't waiting for an answer. It's a rhetorical question. There is no answer to how majestic is his name. It's incredible. But, but let, let, me just, let, me, let me send you the shocker. He says that his glory is above the heavens. So these don't even describe it. They don't even contain it. The, the wow factor that we may have, it doesn't even describe. It's a faint... It's a faint and dim reflection of when we talk about the character and the glory and the majesty of God. 
it's above the heavens. So, so get wowed by space and then recognize that's just a dim reminder of his greatness and glory. The creation gives glory to God. But look in two, the children give glory to God. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, he has ordained praise. That he's brought forth praise. He has ordained the children, that the children, the weak and the insignificant, even the lowliest of low, are going to give him honor and glory. Not only has he determined that, but he's going to use that to silence his enemies. What a tragedy in this beautiful psalm to find that there are enemies of this God. There are enemies. The enemies are the proud and the arrogant and the ones who want to be the center of the universe rather than see God as the creator of the universe. And God, in his power, and this is the point of the kids, God wants to display his power by using the lowest of the low to give him praise. For them to see something about God that the wise and the intelligent and the learned cannot see. They're blind to it. In fact, we see this perfectly measured out in the ministry of Jesus. Let me remind you of when Jesus came into the uh, city of Jerusalem, week before he was going to die. And, and he's receiving the accolades of the people. They're shouting, Hosanna, son of David. Praise, son of David. Now, there's all kinds of freight behind that. And the religious leaders and Pharisees knew it. And so they chided Jesus and said, you better stop these children from ascribing to you such worth and glory that you'd be the Messiah. Here's what Jesus says. Here's the scene. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Jesus replied, have you never read? Don't you love it when he does that to the religious leaders? Have you never read? And here he quotes Psalm 8. He says, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. He's saying that you, in all of your strength, and all of your self-made glory, you're blind to see what these children, in their absolute weakness, have seen. They've seen me. And what's, what's beautiful about it is Psalm 8 was the children praising God. And so when Jesus quotes Psalm 8 about himself, he's saying, I am the God, the Son of God sent to save. When you, when, you, when you read this and you consider this, I think there's a warning and there's a blessing for us. The warning is simply this, that to us in our pride, in our arrogance, in our striving to be self-made, in our, triving, in our achieving and striving to be self-sufficient, there is great danger here. God has established in creation a challenge to every one of us that he alone is the creator. He alone is the one that stands above all things and all people. That all of us, just by the virtue of creation, are bid to humble ourselves and submit to him and recognize our weakness. And a lot of people don't want to do that. And there's a warning for us in that. In fact, in Romans 1, he makes it very clear. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, listen to what he says here. This is explaining why the wrath of God is being revealed. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power 
and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So creation is testifying. Creation is testifying against the proud and the arrogant. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God as God or gave thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became a fool. I thought, listen to what Paul says. So they were without excuse. Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. They didn't give thanks to him. Gratitude, or I should say ingratitude, is a mark of the arrogant. I mean, just just review the past week in your life. Have you been grateful? Has gratitude been a struggle for you? Has it been hard for you to be thankful to God for all that he's done for you? Have you found gratitude well up in you? Just a joy and a thankfulness over what you have? Are your words marked by more criticism and, and critique and harshness over what you don't have versus what you do have? I mean, gratitude is a mark of the humble, of the weak. Boy, it's, it's a quick marker for me to know where I'm standing with God. Am I standing above him or am I kneeling beneath him? But the blessing in this first couple verses is an encouragement to the weak. It, it, that God uses the weak to shame the strong. That God has chosen the things that you and I put a very low price tag on to do his greatest work. I mean, don't you remember seeing this in Jesus' ministry? When, when the children were coming to Jesus as he was doing his ministry in Galilee, the disciples were shooing them away. I mean, really, if you're going to establish a kingdom, the last thing you need is a bunch of kids hanging around. You know, it's just going to clog up all the gearing. And Jesus says, suffer not the children to come to me. To such as these belong the kingdom of God. Now, he's saying us something profound there, that God, his glory and greatness is going to be displayed through the weakness of people. That's what he's teaching us. Or, or when Jesus said to the Pharisees and tax collectors, excuse me, Jesus was talking to religious leaders, and he says to them, they thought they were so right with God. They were so confident in their spirituality. He says, tax collectors and sinners are getting into the kingdom ahead of you. Why? Because they're weak. Who wants to be a prostitute here? Nobody does. People don't choose that to be, to be just broken and fractured. People don't choose that. But God's power is displayed in using them. This is what Paul's getting at when he says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He, he chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Or Jesus said too in Matthew eleven twenty five. he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, reference in creation again, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So some of you are obsessed with overcoming your weakness. You, 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 you shrink back over it. Um, you are self-critical over it. You, you want to do everything to get away from the, the weakness that is you. You look at other people, you see their gifts, you see their strengths, you hold yourself in comparison to them, you're always lower. Woe is me, you just pull yourself out of, out of any sort of ministry, out of any engagement with other people, because you just don't have it. Let someone else do it, they've got all the gifts. Do you see I mean, the, the counterintuitive nature of God again? That, that it's in the weakness? Do you know how many times I've been stunned by a simple question or a word from a child? You know, just they don't have all the answers. They haven't done all the studying I've done. And yet, they, you know, you're in a conversation and someone just says something. 
you know how you're always worried? You come into the conversation, I want to say something really intelligent. I want to say something really sharp. I want to be thought for what I said. And boy, you know, put together this complex thought or explain this complex idea. And yet it's often the conversations that I walk away from being touched the most. It's a simple little weak, if you will, phrase. Or maybe a small little act done. It doesn't have to be this colossal act. It can just be one small act of kindness that I walk away and think, wow, that was really gracious. God does it. That's why we celebrate him. You don't have to be at the top of the food chain in your theological knowledge, your ministry experience. God does great things to remind you of his power so that you don't look to yourself. That's why Paul says, in my weakness I'm made strong. Because if God did things in your power, you'd be so grabby of all the credit and all the glory. But when he uses you in your brokenness, then you have no problem remembering whose grace it was that helped you to do what you did. So let's celebrate God on that issue. That, that, that he uses us in our weakness. Right now, where you are, he can use you. He can do great things in you. And we want to celebrate God for that. Uh, but, but, then, but then secondly, we want to celebrate God for the grace in condescending to us. Look at, look at three and four with me. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, David, just being overwhelmed by the glory of God, he says, when I look at all this stuff, why do you even care for me? In other words, why would you condescend to serve me as you do? Now, it's interesting when he says, when I, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers. So let's make no mistake about it. It's all God's, right? He created it all. He's going to destroy it all one day and he's going to recreate it all in a glorious fashion. It's all his stuff. Everything you and I brought in here and will take out of here is all his stuff. It's all his. But David picks up this idea of the fingers of God. Now, God doesn't have fingers. It's an expression, an anthropomorphism is what we call it, kind of a projecting to God aspects of humanity so that we can understand him better. But the reason he uses fingers is because fingers are the weakest part of us. When you look at the arm and the shoulder and you look at the muscle mass and you look at the tendons, it's much stronger than the fingers. The fingers are relatively weak. In fact, I'm sure one of you here would be like me in terms of you had to say at one point in your life when some kid taunted you to say, you can't pick that up. It's like, ah, I can pick that up with my pinky. I can get that with my pinky. I'm so strong. I mean, it's an expression. Did anybody? <laughs> it's an expression of that's how powerful I am. I don't even need my fingers. I don't need my hand or my arm. I can do it with my pinky. And, and what God is, what David is saying here, this is the work of your fingers. And this is how great God is. And then he stops and he says, so why are you mindful of me? Why do you care about me? Sure, it was a, Isaiah gives word to it. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out their starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. How, how can we walk in pride and arrogance when we have this kind of God? 
I mean, you cannot permanently change the color of your hair. You cannot add two inches to your stature. You can't do it. You can't alter creation. He set his work in the heavens. He set up the planets as they are. You can't change them. Nobody here, no matter the, the military hardware we have, we can't change anything. You can't do anything to the sun. You can't do anything to Venus. You can't do anything to Mars. You can't do anything to any of them. Not we want to reach the heavens? Good, good luck. You can't do anything about it. I, I mean, David is being absolutely humbled by God. Humbled. Just massively humble. I mean, if you're a Christian, ought we not be saying, why are you mindful of us? When was the last time you said, God, why do you even care for me? Why are you condescending to me? Do you ever ask that? Do you ever just wonder, why has he given thought to me? There's so many people that I run across that I even see with my eyes. I don't give thoughts to them. And yet God has condescended to us. Is that not a point of celebration for you? Think about David in Psalm 139 when he says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. In other words, God's thinking about David because he's just gone through that psalm saying, you knit me together in my mother's womb. If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I go to the depths of Sheol, there your right hand will hold me fast. He goes, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Listen, if I would count them, they would be more than the sand. That's how often God thinks about us. Is that not a point of celebration for us? That God thinks about us? He condescends to us? It brings great humility to me. It, it ought to, I believe, us. You know, you know what humility is? Humility is that right understanding of who we are. We need to understand that we're a speck of dust. We really do. Now, when I talk about humility, I'm not talking about self-criticism and self-loathing. C.S. Lewis had a great definition for humility. He said it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. You're just thinking about yourself less. You're thinking more about God. You're overwhelmed by him more than you are yourself. Interesting, back in 1903, Harvard, one of the oldest institutions in this country, was building a new uh, philosophy building called Emerson Hall. Perhaps some of you know this. It was uh, named after Ralph Waldo Emerson. And, uh, and so there was a big debate about what should they put in terms of uh, a piece of wisdom across the huge mantle. You know, as you walk up the stairs and all the, all the columns are there, and it's right over the portal, the entrance of the building. William James was a a philosopher at, uh, at Harvard at the time, and he led a committee that was supposed to make a proposition. And so he proposed Protagoras, this Greek philosopher that lived from 490 B.C. to 420 B.C. And Protagoras had said, man is the measure of all things. And that was going to be proposed to be of the door over the, over the opening of this grand new building of philosophy, right? Well, uh, the president, by the name of uh, Elliot, uh, he took that in and they continued on with the building and then something was inscribed and was left covered until the unveiling and the opening of the building. And when the sheet came down, what was written across there was, what is man that you are mindful of him? The president said, Psalm 8.4 will be placed upon this door. What is man that you're mindful of him? <clears throat> 
to say, we want to celebrate his condescension of us, but you won't if you don't understand that you're a speck of dust. Nations are a speck of dust to God, but he chooses to condescend and to draw near to us and to have thoughts of us. Folks, this is what we want to celebrate. We're in this Christmas season, time of celebration, and it's right. But let's not fail to celebrate the majesty, the unrivaled majesty of God and his grace in condescending to us. But then there's a third reason we can celebrate. Look with me in 5 to 8. It says, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of his hands. You've put all things under his feet. And then he kind of enumerates those things that are under our feet. In other words, what, what God has done is he's not just shown us his greatness that leaves us just in awe. We, he's not only celebrated the fact that he condescends to us, but now he's going to give us greatness. In other words, he's going to give us. I'm sure that when I was reading this, your mind was drawn back to the creation story. Back in Genesis chapter 1, 26, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. I mean, think about it. God has conferred honor and glory to men and women by making them in his image. That, that, that you are a little lower than the angels, but you're above the beasts. That, that, that you have the image of God in you. You can think, you can you can think rationally, you can reason, you can plan, you can weigh, you can consider motivations. Here's what John Calvin said about man. He says, we know right and wrong. We have a sense of shame and guilt, and we understand eternity. God has conferred to us. It's not a glory that is intrinsic to us. It's been, it's been conferred to us. It's been delegated to us. It's God's glory, and it's been given to us. It's incredible, not just the glory of God, but the work of God. It says that we are to exercise dominion. In other words, God had created the man and the woman to exercise dominion, to steward his creation. We were to represent the rule of God on this earth. So we are to be as little gods, if you will, doing God's work. We were his vice regents. We're his princes as he's king of the land. I mean, that's dignity. That's an award. That is incredible that you have been made in the image of God. You've been made. You, he gave us the capacity to rule well. I mean, can we not celebrate the unique nature of the man and the woman bearing the image of God? It's a reason to celebrate. We're not like the beasts of the field. We're not like the animals that move by instinctual practice. We think, we reason, we relate. We, we have capacities that nothing else in creation has. Create piano pieces that, that are incredibly moving. We can create things. We can develop things. We can better things. We can advance things. The way a dog eats a bowl of food is the way a dog has always eaten a bowl of food, and it'll always eat that way. We invented the bowl, not the dog. The dog just eats. It knows to eat. But we're the ones that develop things. God has done that for us. Can we not celebrate him? This is the dignity of man. Those are three things that we can celebrate, but I told you there's four. 
The reason there's a fourth is because there's a problem that we have. A lot of these things I've just said don't play out well in life. But what happened? When you look at the advance, you can see the development of man in the advancements that we've done in this world. I mean, the 20th century has seen no shortage of massive advancements in, in, in many, many different fields. And yet, massive atrocities in the 20th century. It seems to go right along with it. You know, we, we have almost thrown off our crown, we've laid down our scepter, and, and we've become like the animals. I, I mean, not just the international conflict we have, but the personal conflict, the anger, the bitterness, the hate, the jealousy, the rage that is in so many of us. I mean, what happened? What went wrong? You know, God conferred this dignity upon us to exercise dominion, and what did we do? We took it, and instead of exercising his right and proper and good and balanced dominion, we've exploited his creation for our advancement. We were made stewards, and we think that we're owners. We were made caretakers, we became consumers. We were called to be law keepers, we're law breakers. We're supposed to be a speck in in this universe. We want to be the center of the universe. We're called to marvel at his works. We love our own works. We're called to, we're called to be in awe of the stars. We want to make stars of ourselves. You know, we're, we're to rejoice over bearing his image. We're concerned about our self-image. We're to rejoice in bearing his name, and we want to create names for ourselves. We've absolutely thrown our crown down. We've laid the scepter down. And this is the nature of sin. This usurping, this manipulation, this inversion of what God has made us to be. And, and if, if I had to stop here, then like Paul, I would say, just go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But there's a fourth point of celebration. And that is that God has sent a son to conquer the sin that warped us. God has sent a son to us. This is how God has redeemed this fall from grace. You know, Psalm 8 is all about what God has done. And then sin enters, warps it. And we begin looking at ourselves now, and it's like looking in, in the mirrors at the circus. We're warped and distorted. But Jesus has come to, to change that, to regain a lost opportunity. And the reason I'm introducing Jesus right now into this text is because the writer of Hebrews did. Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus was had to be born as a man. This is the point of Christmas, that Jesus had to be born as a man to dwell among us to redeem man, restore man back to the way he was originally designed to be. This is the great thing of Christmas. It's a massive rescue operation. Save a broken and, and disenfranchised people and restore them to be what God wants us to be. That's what Christmas is about. Listen, in Hebrews chapter 2, here's what the writer writes. He says, what is man that you're mindful of him? He's going to quote Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the reason for Christmas, that Jesus has come to be made a little lower than the angels. Think about his life, his incarnation. He's born with flesh. 
Remember now, all the Greek religions, they, they saw the material world as wicked and broken and evil. And, and all the movements of the gods were from the material world to the spiritual world. And yet Jesus enters the broken material world. He endures infancy. He undergoes the pains of growth and struggles that we all have. He faces the conflict. He faces the rejection of people. Angels never had to suffer any of that. Angels didn't have to go through life and the growing pains. He he bears the darkness that Satan throws at him. He bears the sin and then experiences the forsakenness of God as he bears our sin. Angels never had to go through that. He's made lower than the angels so that he can bear our sin, that he can be forsaken of God, and so that he can die. Angels never died, but he died. He tasted death for everyone. This is what he's come to do. He's come to die to restore us. Now, God, he made him a little lower than the angels, but then he crowned him with glory. He raised him from the dead. Jesus Christ ascended on high. Now he's seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule, power, and authority, and dominion for the church. That's what he's done, that God has conferred. Now, we don't see everything in subjection to him. Obviously, we see a world in upheaval. But we are people by faith who have seen him come once. We now live in that age. That's why we're people of faith and not people of sight, because we believe that he's going to come again and we'll visibly and openly see him rule over all things. And that day comes. And until that day comes, we live now being restored, being made new. You know, when you think about it, if he came to restore man, this gives, this gives help to us in understanding language like you must be born again. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. We are new creation. The old has passed away. In other words, Jesus coming as the perfect man, fully human, fulfilling Psalm 8, is now making us perfect men and women. Incrementally so. It's what we call sanctification. In fact, what are the marks of the new man? This is where I want you to kind of investigate your own soul now. Jesus came to do this work, and now you begin to see that work bear fruit in our lives. But first you need to be in the kingdom. I would say that to you. And I always speak knowing that that there be people here that are not Christian. Maybe you're looking at it, maybe you're interested, maybe you're here with a friend. Or perhaps you've lived in the church world, but you've never really known. Have I ever really become a follower of Christ? I mean, I agree to most of it, but, but my life doesn't seem to evidence it. Well, the first thing we have to do is, how do we become new men, new women? Well, this is the irony, getting back to Psalm 8. Jesus says in Matthew eighteen three, he says, Truly I say to you, he says, unless you turn and become like a babe or a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven apart from turning, repenting, and becoming like a child. In other words, in your weakness, you recognize you've got nothing to bring. In other words, the Christian begins this walk by recognizing that he is in absolute need, as Keith prayed, only sin do we bring to him? And he only brings grace and forgiveness to us. And it's all because of what Jesus Christ has done. So God can be lavish with the gifts. We sang that song, forget what song it was, but countless gifts he gives. 
Just countless graces he gives because of the Son. Remember, God is so supremely pleased in Jesus. When he sees Jesus, he says, this is, my, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So because he's so pleased in the work of Christ, he can be lavish with grace and forgiveness to us. So all of our lives hang on his perfect work. So that's, what, that's how we become a Christian, is we, by faith, repent of our sins and we trust in Jesus Christ. That he is our deliverer. He is our rescuer. He's not helping us live a better life. He's not imparting grace to us so we can add our righteousness to it to be saved. That's not it. He saves us in and through himself alone. Okay, so that's how you become a Christian. And if you haven't, I would plead with you to consider that. In two weeks, we'll be looking at Psalm 110. It is a heavy psalm. He comes as a ruling king and judge. And you want to see him as a follower at that point, not as an enemy. Okay, the second thing, a a mark of the redeemed man, the restored woman, would be a pursuit of humility. Humility is not going to come to you as the common cold. You have to pursue humility. You have to actively engage it. That's why contemplation of creation and of the cross lead to humiliation, but not a bad humiliation. I I don't mean a humiliation like, oh, woe is me. It's not an Eeyore kind of Winnie the Pooh thing. It's a humiliation in understanding who we really are in light of God. That's what it's about. It's truly understanding our station. John Stott says it's being honest about who we are and, and not putting on all the airs. But I like to think of pursuing humility like the rungs of a ladder. And I begin to think about and expressing through gratitude. And sometimes I just want to thank God, thank you for the life I have. You've given me such nice things. You've given me health. You've given me life. You've given me a a wonderful place to live. I could have been born in Romania in 1482 as a son of some slave. I could have been. I didn't do anything to get here. I didn't determine my birthplace and determine the brains he's given me me or or the opportunities I had. It was all given to me. And and I just thank him. And and, and then I go up the ladder. Thank you for the wife I have. I have a glorious wife. God's really blessed me with that. And the the children I have in the church. And then I just go up the ladder all the way to the cross. Thank you for saving me. And I just kind of walk up that ladder and I find my eyes just kind of brought right up to the glory of God. And it cultivates in me a humility. I encourage you, pursue humility. It will not come to you. You need to actively engage it and pursue it. And part of that is going to be a display of if you've been saved, you'll want to walk in humility. The cross, I will say to you, will quickly bring humility that's why we consider the cross every sunday here because the cross reminds you of how desperately you need him martin lloyd jones said this he said there's only one thing i know that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust and that is to look at the son of god and contemplate the cross when i survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died my richest gain i count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride nothing else can do it when i see that i'm a sinner that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me. I'm humbled to the dust. Nothing but the cross can give us the spirit of humility. And thirdly, I'd say the new man is evidenced by, uh, by stewardship. 
Stewardship and, and ecology, that's not for the political left. Folks, that's for the church. Okay, This is God's world. This is God's creation. We're called to steward it. And not just steward the creation, but steward the relationships we have, steward the opportunities we have. That, that We want to be mindful. We are the mask of God, as Martin Luther said. When we live and move and speak, we are the mask of God. We are to be displaying God through what we do and who we are. And then last is worship. The last mark of the new man, at least for today, is worship. There ought to be a growing greater enjoyment over the things of God, excuse me, over God than rather the things of God. You know, we can become so focused and myopic in terms of all the things that we have, and that begins to get the most amount of our attention. But the new man or the new woman are increasingly using those things of the rung on the ladder to get up to God. And say, oh, if if these are great and kind and good, how much better ought he to be? So the new man is growing in his desire. You want to worship. You want to be here on Sunday morning. Sunday morning, to gather with the community, be united around the word of God, that's to push aside all the other trivial, temporal things that we want to come together among the assembled body, preparing to see him. We're the colony of heaven. This is the outpost of glory. This is where we're fed, we're encouraged in God's spirit draws us together. I think I've said enough. Let me pray for us. Father, we want to celebrate you. We want to celebrate you for having an unrivaled majesty. We want to celebrate you today, Father, for condescending in grace to us. We want to celebrate you for conferring dignity upon us and making us so different than the animals. Forgive us when we live like beasts. And we want to celebrate you for the Son, who has restored to us these things in incremental fashion as you transform us from glory to glory. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.